Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. The Victorian government has announced a major shake-up of housing policy. It includes a levy on short-stay rentals, reforms to the planning scheme and plans to redevelop the state's 44 public housing towers as part of the mix to address issues of availability and supply that have been around for some time but, of course, have been worsening. To help us work through all the detail, I'm joined by Guardian Australia's Victorian state correspondent, Benita Colovas. Hello, Benita. Great to have you back on Triple R. Good morning, Dylan. Thanks for having me. And so, obviously, this has kind of been a long time coming, I suppose. We had the housing legislation pass federal parliament just a short time ago as well. Were you expecting there would be a fairly significant announcement from the Victorian government around now? Yeah, I'm not sure if you remember a couple of months ago, National Cabinet met, and they all made a decision, the Prime Minister and all the premiers of states and territories, um, to address housing affordability. The federal government said, you know, we've got our own legislation happening at a federal level, and then, you know, we expect the states to do their own thing as well at a state level. Um, Victoria has been talking about this, though, for, like, you know, months before Mm -hmm. that National Cabinet meeting. So we always knew it was coming. We were told it's going to be the biggest policy um, of all the states, I guess, on this front. So um, we have been waiting, and um, I think we got to the press conference on Wednesday and got given a 40 page document and off we go and that's been the week so far. Yeah, start, start working through it and I want to get, <laughs> get, get into some of, some of the detail but in your analysis for Guardian Australia you wrote about the optics of this as being an important way to kind of understanding how it's been, been framed I guess and how it might have come mm. to some of the decisions. Why was it significant that in announcing this there were sort of representatives of the building and property sectors represented? Well, if you cast your mind back to, I think it was February last year, the government announced a social housing levy where developments, I think, of three or more like units or townhouses, you had to you know, give some money to develop social housing in the state as well. That obviously, I think it lasted 10 days in total. Like the development property groups, everyone went nuts on it. Um, so I guess this time having those members of the property council, master builders, everyone behind the premier at this one was significant. It was saying, look, we're all on side, we're all in this issue and we're going to tackle it together. So I do, I do think it was a, a very significant shift um, behind the scenes. I know they've been working together for quite some time to make sure that developers were on board. And let's work through some of the, the major parts of this, I guess. So one of the things the government's going to be doing is is reforming the planning scheme to sort of give state government a bit more power in granting approvals and the like to, to fast-track some developments in particular parts of the state. What can you tell us about what's on the table as part of the government's initiative? So basically developments that are worth at least $50 million in Melbourne and I think it's $15 million in regional Victoria, that's going to be the government overseeing those planning applications rather than local councils. Um, and the trade-off, I guess, is that these developments have to have at least 10% affordable housing in them. So if you want to have, you know, I think it's going to be months versus years to get your project approved, um, you have to provide some affordable housing as well. That's a real key one. Um, and the government saying this is going to stop backlogs at local council levels, going to stop, you know, those um, lengthy court battles with community groups and the like. Um, it's kind of like a YIMBY versus um, NIMBY 
thing that we've yeah. been hearing a lot more of recently. Councils, however, they'll say that we weren't, we have been approving these projects. So um, I, I guess it depends who you talk to, whether this is actually needed or not. So that's a, a key one, is this fast tracking of approval processes. There's the Airbnb levy which is, um, I think, 7.5% on, well, it's not just Airbnbs, it's short stays. Um, stays, of course, is one of them. Um, the government saying that if you're going to play such a key part of, you know, the state's economy, that you should be contributing back as well, and that money will go towards social housing and affordable housing. Um, and I think you mentioned as well the public housing tower yeah. redevelopment is massive. So that's the 44, you know, they've become quite an iconic part of the, the state skyline. All those um, high-rise towers are going to be redeveloped staged. It's going to take, you know, significant amount of time to slowly go through each of them and redevelop those public areas. And each of those issues, you know, doesn't come without contention. If we just return for a moment to the reforms of the planning scheme and that requirement that, uh, you know, developments over mm. or worth $50 million in Melbourne and $15 million in regional Victoria um, will be overseen by the Victorian government as long as they include at least 10% affordable housing. How do we actually define affordable housing? Like, what does that mean? The government has a definition for it. Um, they can change it. Um, I think from the top of my head, you're challenging me now. Um, <laughs> it's, you have to make a combined income as a, a couple around $100,000, $120,000. Um, families around $130,000. Um, and singles, I think it's like mid-60s. Um, I can check up I'm on not, that. I'm not going to hold you to that, but, <laughs> but there is a, a clear a clear definition yeah. here that's being applied. So there is, yeah, there is a, a, a specific definition the government can adapt it if it wants, and then that means that you have to be providing, um, I think it's under 10% of market rent, so it's not, it's not public housing, it's not social housing, and I've interviewed people that are part of this scheme because it already operates um, in some parts of the state. It's just, you know, um, say like a student that's, studying and has a part-time job and how hard it is to find a rental at the moment. It's helping those sorts of people out, say, um, a couple that's, you know, both nurses um, and wants to live close to the hospital that they work at but wouldn't be able to afford it otherwise. So the government um, ensures that rent at these properties stay below market rate um, and isn't more than, I think, 30% of the couple's combined income. So, yeah, it's not social housing that is going to be part of these developments, it's more going to be these affordable options for, you know, people that can't afford how much rent is at the moment. Yeah. There's a lot of people. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. And uh, I mean, how have sort of particular local councils responded to this? Do you have much of a sense of whether they're sort of okay with the state government having more control over these kinds of planning applications? Look, it's, it's part of local council's bread and butter mm. um, and it's where they have a really important role in shaping how their local area looks. So naturally a lot of them aren't happy about it. Um, they say that they were approving a lot of buildings and developments and the fact is that developers aren't building at the moment because labour, you know, is so expensive, building supplies is so expensive that they're just holding off until market conditions improve. So, um, like I said before, there's so many aspects of this and it depends who you speak to. You'll get very mixed views. So a lot of the councils are saying we were doing as much as we can. Government's released a whole bunch of data showing that some of them are taking years to get these projects approved. 
Um, and, you know, some councils are worse than others. I think in regional Victoria it's really interesting as well because there's just such a shortage of town planners that yeah. a lot of communities in those areas are like, well, we, we need housing, so maybe this is this is going to be a solution to it. So those big, complicated approvals will get done in the city. But then, on the other hand, you've got people saying, well, how does someone in the city know what our town is like and whether this will fit into it? So, I don't know. I, I haven't got... a you know, black or white. Yeah. Um, people are, yeah, all over the place on this one. A whole range of views and a, a bunch <laughs> of really complicated policies as well that are part of this package. Like, there's a lot of detail in there. To mm. return for a moment to the Airbnb levy, so 7.5%, mm. what's your sense of how that has been received by, you know, particular stakeholders and the like? I note that the Greens have, you know, suggested it's not going to go far enough in mm. opening up housing. How have people responded to that? So basically what the government's trying to say is because of the popularity of these short-stay accommodation platforms that that's housing that could have been in the market that now is not. So it's only fair that, you know, you're paying a contribution into social housing mix. Um, I think the Premier's described it as modest, um, but the industry obviously aren't happy. Tourism Council is saying it's going to be, you know, automatically passed on to travellers. It's not like Airbnb is going to take the hit something like this, it'll end up being an extra, you know, 7%, 7.5% on your bill when you're going to go stay somewhere. So naturally, tourism industry isn't happy, Airbnb isn't happy, stays aren't happy. Um, but I don't know, I think when I talk to my mates, and, you know, a, a normal person that is, you know, away from the cut and dry of politics, they, they don't really care. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, worth being reminded all, of that. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's really important. Like, I've been talking about this with my friends and even just, you know, trying to find out, do you even know that we've had this massive policy release? And a lot of them, to be fair, do know. Um, but they are, I think, if we can talk about it, to the rental reform. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of um, younger people are, are pretty stoked about some of them. Yeah, so talk us through what's been proposed here. So um, there's a whole chapter, obviously, you've got the development stuff, social housing stuff. Um, there's a whole section on protecting renters' rights. Um, there's some things that just seem like no-brainers. Like, I know in New South Wales, there's a portable bond scheme where when you pay a bond, it's held by the government, it's not held by the real estate agent. And then if you move, that bond goes with you, which is common sense, right? Because if you're paying in a $2,000 bond somewhere and then you're moving somewhere else, you're going to be out of pocket $4,000 yep. for a bit there. Um, so that's a, a key one. Um, there is a, um, a notice to vacate or notice to increase rent goes up from 60 to 90 days. Um, and then if you try to um, jack your rent, so vacate, you know, notice to vacate to your current tenants and then jack up the rent a week later, you won't be able to do that anymore. Yeah, right. um, so, you know, within 12 months of issuing a notice to vacate, you can't increase your rent. So it is a, a form of rental control. Um, there's a ban on rental bidding as well. We'll make it an offence. So you can't currently you can't a real estate agent can't say, well, if you gave us an extra fifty dollars a week, we'll take this property. Um, but a, a tenant or a prospective tenant can do that. So now they're saying you won't have to, you can't do it in either scenario. And, um, and do you know when yeah. when those measures come in? So um, I spoke to the premier about this, and he said um, twenty twenty five. Yep. There's still a bit of time on this front, and I know there are some concerns around enforcement. 
like, how will you know if people are rental bidding or not unless you're out there, you know, enforcing it? That's right. And in terms of the rental increases within 12 months, how are you going to keep track of that? So the government's going to have to come back and show us how they're going to be able to do these things. Otherwise, it all sounds, you know, wonderful on paper, but might not actually change things for Victorians. And anyone who, who's, you know, tried to get a rental, particularly in sort of <laughs> high-demand cities, not a, even recently, like going back 10 years and so, it's quite common to rock up and have a line down the street of people and you'd wear your best clothes and, and mm. have a kind of chat off to the side to the agent to try to get the place. And sometimes, you know, that might involve offering a bit more, which, which really sucks. So hopefully this does go some mm. way towards, um, you know, granting renters more rights in that space. Speaking with Benita Kolovos, Guardian Australia's Victorian state correspondent, working through a lot of the fine grain detail of the Victorian government's <laughs> housing policy and just on the plans to demolish and rebuild the 44 public housing towers. I mean, I understand this will increase the, the number of dwellings in total from 10,000 to 30,000, but in terms of public housing, there'll just be 1,000 more places of residence. Is that the case? Yeah, so basically the government saying that the amount of social housing across these sites is going to increase by 10%. So obviously there's 10,000 now add an extra 1000 onto that, but then they're saying there's going to be 30,000 homes on this precinct. So that's where, um, you know, views start to get mixed because the Premier was saying at his press conference that a lot of private homes are going to be built on this land as well. He was calling it, you know, really valuable pockets of land. And, you know, we all, we all know the Collingwood Flats, Carlton, Kensington, these are places that people want to live. But whether that should be the case on publicly owned land for the state's most vulnerable, that's a completely different question. Yeah, and, and I think people can understand, you know, the Premier said that there's some of these places are crumbling, they're really in need of redeveloping because, you know, they're no longer sort of viable places to live or, mm. or comfortable places to live and the like. And I think we can all sort of get behind that. But we know if we think back to, you know, the, the height of COVID-19 with the, the lockdowns of particular towers in Flemington and North Melbourne, that there wasn't sort of a great relationship and, and any consultation done with some of those residents either. Look, I imagine to do this effectively, there needs to be a lot of work done to make sure residents, you know, can continue to keep those community connections up. What's your sense of whether the government has kind of learned its lessons and is doing the work needed to make sure people aren't, um, you know, impacted in a detrimental way from these redevelopments? Yeah, look, it's really early days. So um, credit where credit's due before that press conference on Wednesday where they announced this, they had people from Homes Victoria and the department door knocking, providing, you know, information and flyers and saying nothing's happening straight away. Um, it's going to be a stage process. We're going to be communicating with you throughout, you know, the years that this is going to take. Um, but it's all very well and easy to do that bit. It's when you start to have to move people out and making sure they're still connected to community and making sure they're moved into places that are comfortable for them and that when they're all redeveloped that they have a place there. Um, there's a lot of talk, um, and I guess we kind of need more information and clarity around, let's say that there's, you know, three-bedroom apartments for bigger families or four-bedroom apartments. How many of them are there going to be in these new developments? Are people going to be offered a like-for-like -like property? All that sort of stuff um, we get to, to know more. So Premier is confident that if people want to move back, they'll be able to, but he was also saying people might be happy where they are. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's going to take a lot of communication. Um, they did note there's been a lot of translators involved in this work as well, which we know wasn't happening during the COVID lockdowns. So, I don't know. There's a part of me that 
has to give them credit, but then also, you know, it's really early days. It's going to be a lot more they need to do. Absolutely. And just lastly, how do you anticipate the politics that this might play out when, you know, certain parts of, of this go through Parliament and the like, especially in the upper house where the Greens have the balance of power? Yeah, so the Greens are naturally quite unhappy about this. They were out at the public um, housing towers talking to residents. Um, the Labor Party would say that they were scaring residents um, and, you know, spreading misinformation. Let's look at it somewhere in the middle um, of both of those views. <laughs> um, so they're pretty much um, threatening if they don't get more information about what these redevelopments look like, they might not support um, some parts of this, because not all of it has to go through the parliament. Yeah. All the planning stuff, that's all done by code, and that's, that's done. Um, but the renters' rights, which, you know, to a lot of younger voters that are Greens voters, that's really important. Um, so they won't get through unless um, the Greens support them. But then you've also got the coalition, and there is an opportunity there. If, you know, if the coalition support Labor in the upper house, they don't need the Greens. But they're currently not, not happy with the fact that local communities have been shut out of the planning approval process. So at some point here, Labor's going to have to decide who they want to negotiate with and, and what concessions they're willing to make. Yeah. I don't know. I think um, it'd be great if we got some further information about the public housing tower redevelopment via this process. Um, but, yeah, we'll have to see. Absolutely. And we can rely on you to keep us informed of those developments, <laughs> Vanita. It's been so great working through some of this detail with you. There's a lot there. And, um, you know, I'm sure listeners kind of share my appreciation for going through it um, in, in such a clear and concise fashion. Thanks so much. Pleasure. Sorry, I was speaking very fast to try and get it all to you. <laughs> Absolutely necessary. We'll chat again soon. Thanks. Have a good one. Triple R. Last week, Rupert Murdoch announced he was stepping down as chairman of his two big publicly listed companies, News Corp and Fox Corp. With that, his son Lachlan rises to the top as the apparent successor to his media empire. And one of his first moves in that role has been to endorse the nomination of Tony Abbott to the Fox Corp board. Stephen Mayne has long kept a close and critical eye on Murdoch and done his best at shareholder meetings to raise important issues around corporate governance and transparency. And Stephen joins me now on the line. Hello, Stephen. Great to have you back on Morning, Dylan. So, big news. Does this amount to retirement for Rupert Murdoch? Well, yes, it does in the sense that he will be formally resigning from both boards uh, at the AGMs in November. So, he will lose his legal power to control the company, but he'll retain his voting power over 40% of the votes in both companies. So his power will, will come back to just being able to uh, dictate who is elected to the board at the annual meeting. So obviously he will dictate that Tony Abbott is elected to the board on November 17, even though I'm predicting a majority of the independent shareholders will vote against Tony Abbott's appointment on the basis that he's unsuitable and doesn't have much relevant commercial experience. But that's how his power will transition away from control of the boardroom to control of what happens at the AGMs through voting his gerrymandered 40% stake in both companies. And so on that move to well, endorse Tony Abbott's nomina nomination to the Fox Corp board, I mean, is that at all significant that this came just after the announcement that Lachlan would be taking over, or is that kind of a, a coincidence? Yeah, no, I think uh, it's, it's deliberate. Uh, it's like any sort of, you know, dictatorship. Uh, it's a deliberate messaging 
So what they're telling the world is Rupert's farewell statement basically said, I'm, I'm, sort of, I'm going, but I'm not. I'm endorsing Lachlan and long live the right-wing culture wars. Mm. That was sort of the essence of what he said. And then the very next day, Lachlan announces that Tony Abbott's being appointed to the board. So Lachlan is trying to send a message to everyone that, that he'll be even more right-wing than his dad was. And uh, I thought it was amazing that Jack Nass's retirement from the board was also announced with the Tony Abbott appointment. And Jack Nasser was the global CEO of Ford. He was the chairman of BHP. He's been working on boards with Rupert since the 1990s. And Rupert didn't even give him a paragraph of farewell. You know, it was just Lachlan, I thank you for your service. So I think it's actually quite an ominous sign that someone as credible as Jack Nasser who you would trust to look after the interests of the independent shareholders, keep the Murdochs honest, you know, stop them taking $80 million a year in salaries and, and bonuses, which has sort of been the average over recent years. Uh, he's going, and Tony Abbott's coming on. Now, Tony Abbott, they're claiming, is an independent director. Well, that's a joke because he's a paid News Corp podcaster with Peter Credlin, so he can't be independent when he's a contractor to the other part of the Murdoch Empire News Corp. So already they're claiming he's independent when he's not. Um, so I think it's a worrying sign that Lachlan's going to try and stack the board with his mates um, and control the company that way, and Rupert's giving his blessing to do this as long as he's alive and controls the, uh, the, the voting block at the AGMs, which selects the directors every year. And, I mean, you reflected on this in, in Crikey recently and also on uh, Lachlan's kind of performance, I suppose, as a, a prominent figure in public company boards stepping sort of away from Rupert, I suppose not sort of under the, the close watch for lie. That was in relation to, to one talent, 10 network holdings, and they didn't go particularly well. So should we read anything into his ability to, I, I suppose, successfully manage companies, and I say successfully with an asterisk because, you know, stacking boards with right-wing culture warriors is not a sign of success, in my view. No, well, look, I agree. I mean, frankly, I think he's, you know, he's the Prince Charles of, of, of the Murdoch Empire. He's been waiting forever to be handed the, the, the crown by his ageing uh, parent. Um, and he's just not up to the job. Um, and what other public companies can the, the chairman, who only controls about 17% of the shares in the company, I mean, 83% of these companies are owned by hundreds of thousands of public shareholders all over the world. So this idea that you can pretend you're the monarch, you're monarch or, or the Lee family in North Korea and you can just hand this over to your son, I think it's a poison chalice for Lachlan because he's just not very good. He's just not up to the job. And there's no way he's going to be able to competently be the, the chairman of two global media empires whilst working part-time in Sydney because he lives in Sydney, he loves going on his boat and on holidays. He probably wants to be the non-executive chair and just appoint people to run the show for him. But he's actually claiming he's going to be the executive chair of Fox Corp and the chair of News Corp, plus he's running his private radio interests, uh, plus he's going to focus on being a culture warrior. So I think he's going to crash and burn big time and the shareholders are going to revolt. And uh, once Rupert passes on, Lockton will probably get removed. Interesting. And I mean, there's, there's an article doing the rounds that I know has caused a bit of chatter written by Geraldine Brooks in the Agent City Morning Herald suggesting that Rupert chose the wrong su- successor, the wrong heir. She was sort of writing about her experience, writing profiles, and that James was, was the more impressive of the brothers. I mean, do you share those kinds of sentiments in terms of his ability to, to manage the company? It sounds like you've got you know, reservations about his ability to do so. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've asked questions at more than 600 public company AGMs and Lachlan, when I grilled him over two years at the Channel 10 AGM in, in Sydney, when he was the chairman, 
I have to admit, he was one of the most unimpressive chairs I've dealt with. I mean, I just don't think he's very bright. Um, and he's, he's got a real glass jaw, so he spits the dummy really easily, like when he spat the dummy when he fell out with Roger Ailes and just came back to Australia and for 10 years was not an executive of the company. It's like when he spat the dummy when he sued Crikey for defamation over mm-hmm. a pretty harmless column, in my view, and then it finished up with egg on his face and a $1.3 million legal bill. So, um, yeah, from everything I've seen, the, you know, the disaster at OneTel, the disaster at Channel 10, I mean, people try and give him credit for REA Group. And yes, he did agree that they'd buy 40% of REA, REA Group for $10 million back in 2001. But he hasn't served a day on the board. The company's based in Melbourne. I, I, think, I reckon Lachlan's probably been to the head office uh, 20 times over the last uh, 20 years in Melbourne. So this idea that, that he's created $20 million of value because of the brilliant performance of REA Group, it's just not true. He suggested the investment and then other people have performed well. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, I just think he's overpromoted, um, and uh, he's going to come a cropper when he hasn't got the protection of his dad. And it'll be up to the independent directors to actually um, uh, move against him and hold him to account. And that's the real worry about about Tony Abbott. Is the only way I can see Lachlan surviving as chairman of both companies is if he can stack the ball with his mates. And uh, he's moving immediately to try and do that. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting to reflect on that payout to Crikey, you know, after, after you know him and his legal team abandoned defamation proceedings because he did sort of essentially end up with egg on his face. There was also the, the much larger payout to Dominion when the, uh, that settlement over in the United States to the tune of $787 million. Now, there's been a sense that, you know, Fox News Corp, they're massive companies that can absorb these kinds of costs. But is there a, a broader damage if these kinds of cases are, are settled and don't really, you know, go according to how, um, you know, Lachlan Murdoch or, or other um, figures in the Fox and News Corp companies might seek to run them. I mean, does that have a broader damage in terms of shareholder confidence in the companies themselves if it keeps happening? Well, certainly the $1.2 billion settlement over Dominion was a, a, a massive uh, black eye for the company and a vote of no confidence um, in the Murdochs because they were recklessly running Fox News and then had to pay $1.2 billion essentially partly to avoid this 92-year-old chairman from being grilled in a public court giving evidence. So I think that's partly one of the reasons why Rupert has gone. He's just too old to actually do those public-facing roles like chairing an AGM or giving evidence in court or talking about the profit figure. So, um, and also, you know, if they were going to be endorsing Trump next year at the presidential election and attacking Joe Biden for being too old, I mean, it wouldn't have been too good a look if at the same time Rupert was saying, I'm 93 now and I want another year as the chairman of Fox Corp. So I think he just had to go because he was too old. Uh, The the shareholder writs are flying over Dominion. There's other court cases to come with Smartmatic. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a bit of a debacle, and uh, and he just had to get out because he just can't get up with the job, and now he's trying to foist his son on everyone who most people don't want and don't reckon is any good. And you regularly attend Fox and News Corp AGMs. There's some, I, I understand, coming up later this year, I think in November. Are you intending to, to come along, and what are some of the you know the questions you might try and pose at those meetings? Well, look, I've been to 15 of his AGMs over the years and, and spent about three or four hours asking Rupert questions. So I, I may... I've just got to see the date because I still haven't released the date for the News Corp AGM yet. We know that uh, Fox Corp is November 17 at the Fox Studios lot in LA. So my last trip to LA was 2016, which was two days after Trump got elected. And I was asking Rupert about 
you know, whether he was embarrassed about backing Trump and whether he was worried that Trump was going to set up Trump TV to compete with Fox News. And uh, so I am due for a visit, Dylan. Yeah. Um, I might do a bit of crowdfunding and see if I can raise the cash to get over there because it would be nice to say farewell to Rupert after 71 years and it would be nice to say hello to Tony Abbott and uh, ask a few questions like, you know, was a headhunter involved in Tony Abbott's selection? Uh, how big is Rupert's pension as chairman emeritus? Does he get access to all company documents or is he going to be locked out of the office? You know, there's lots of important questions and particularly hearing from the independent directors as to why they've backed Lachlan because so far we haven't heard boo out of this. We've just heard the Murdochs talking about the comings and goings of directors when these independent directors should should have a committee to talk about this. Yeah, that's going to be... I'd love to hear how that questioning goes if you do make it over there. Speaking with Stephen Main, shareholder, activist, journalist and, and founder of Crikey, all about the Murdoch succession plan, which was announced uh, last week with Lockham to take over um, the two publicly listed, large publicly listed companies, News Corp and Fox Corp. And I suppose, you know, ref- reflecting on the legacy of Rupert Murdoch and the role, I suppose, of his media empire in stoking culture wars and the like, there's been a bunch of climate scientists interviewed uh, as part of reporting in The Guardian talk talking about the really damaging effect, especially on sowing disinformation and, and disputing climate science and the like as well. With Lachlan at the helm and thinking about the Australian media market, I mean, do you imagine there might be attempts to try to exacerbate that kind of effect that, that Murdoch and, and his news outlets have had on public debate? How do you think it, it might play into changes in, in our sort of domestic media market, if at all? Look, I, I, I'm not going to say it's going to get worse because it's already terrible. So I just think we're going to see more of the same, that there'll be no change. I mean, maybe with with Rupert off the board, uh, Lachlan won't be able to, to sort of turn a blind eye to some of the wildest conspiracy theories in climate denialism. I mean, the campaign they're running against the no referendum, at the against the yes, yes case on the Indigenous Recognition refer- Referendum, is just disgraceful. I mean, they're, they're doing it again, just like with climate scientists and the, and the wild campaign they ran in favour of Brexit and the wild propaganda they did saying, let's all invade Iraq, you know, for the second time, which was a disaster. So they just they just have... They're just totally unethical when it comes to sort of balance and, and journalistic debate. And they get involved in conspiracy theories like denying there's an election, uh, a fair election result with, with Trump and January 6th. And I think they're doing it again with uh, the Indigenous recognition uh, agenda. But with conservative governments out of power in the US, Australia, and soon to be in the UK, I think they're going to struggle for allies in power. So I think they're going to find even more of a regulatory and legal backlash if they continue to just run sort of unbelievable propaganda on hot social issues like climate change, Indigenous recognition, uh, anti-vaccine mandates and Trump and, and Brexit and anti-immigrant stuff and all the, all the appalling stuff they've been doing in recent years. Has there been enough of a focus on that in, in what you've read and, and encountered across the media landscape in terms of Rupert Murdoch's legacy? I mean, it's often said that he's, you know, Australia's most successful businessman and the like, but the damage, if you think about some of those issues over the years, I mean, it's, it's been pretty significant. Oh, look, I'm amazed with how he gets away with it. I mean, people are just scared of him. So people, you know, don't say what they really think. But, I mean, you think about phone hacking. I mean, that was just industrial-scale spying on people illegally, and it's cost them over a billion dollars in payouts. And how Rupert wasn't kicked off the board and no longer being allowed to own television licences... I thought it was amazing. I mean, I just find the fact that the, the Murdoch men have taken $1.84 billion in salaries and bonuses from public companies which they only own 17% of in the last 25 years. 
people are banging on about Alan Joyce getting paid too much. I mean, on Saturday, they revealed the, 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 the 2022-23 pay figures for the Fox directors, and, and Rupert and Lachlan shared in $44 million US dollars. I mean, thinking about Alan Joyce, this is outrageous that yeah. these companies, these billionaires, their families worth $30 billion, is taking $70 million a year Australian dollars from a public company which is owned by hundreds of thousand regular shareholders, not called Murdoch. And they control the board through a gerrymander where they've got 40% of the votes, but only 70% of the, of the stock. And they, they pick their compliant directors who agree to pay them these outrageous salaries. So I don't know why people don't complain about this, but uh, there's so many scandals within the Murdoch structure. Um, yeah, they just keep getting away with it because they're ferocious and fierce and they attack people and everyone's scared of them. Always great to have your insights on Triple R, Stephen. And if you do make it over to that shareholder meeting, we'd, um, we'd love to hear how it goes. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dylan. Have a great day. Triple R. The federal government has called on companies that run online dating sites that apps uh, and apps, I should say, to develop an industry code of practice to better protect users' safety. This comes following data indicating that up to three in four people using such platforms have been subjected to some form of sexual violence, including harassment, stalking and image-based abuse. To talk through this issue and the merits of industry self-regulation, I'm joined by Kath Albrey, Professor of Media and Communications at Swinburne University of Technology who's leading a study on these related topics. Kath, it's great to have you on at Triple R. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. And so the use of, of these sites and apps is just so common today, but that finding that, that three in four people have experienced some form of abuse is quite startling. Based on the research you've done, I mean, what kinds of experiences are we talking about? Yeah, um, I think it's, it's uh, important to note that it's three and four people who answered the survey, not yeah. three and four people who've ever used apps. Um, but the uh, the kinds of things that people experience on apps really range from the annoying to the quite scary. Um, so uh, people uh, sometimes receive pictures or messages that they don't want, and, and Rosalie Gillard at QUT refers to that as intimate intrusions. Um uh, but then it ranges from kind of very persistent um, communication. So people, you know, when when the person they were talking to said no thank you and maybe then blocked them, they might create a new account and keep hassling or harassing. Um, that's one of the issues that we've seen. Um, there are also um, kind of really deceptive or misleading kinds of communication where the person really is trying to stalk or physically assault um, their match on the app. And, and those are the issues um, that, yeah, obviously are, are incredibly distressing um, for app users. And, and the kind of thing that I guess every app user who is in a marginalised or vulnerable population, which is a lot of us, people with disabilities, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, LGBTQ plus people, women are very mindful of when using apps. So, yeah, a, a lot, a yeah. lot. And, uh, I mean, for those who might not have used these kinds of apps before, and I know, you know, that there's quite a number of them, what measures or, or, or options are there in place to report that kind of abuse? I mean, what can people do if they do experience that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the mechanisms for reporting are different on the different apps and are kind of uneven, which is why the call for the um, 
common code of practice has been made. So in some cases, it's quite easy to understand how to block, how to report, what the consequences are of blocking and reporting. If you're in a position where you want to make a complaint to the police, you're able to contact the app and the app will share data uh, with the police that that is necessary as evidence in a in a case of sexual assault, for example, or, or, or stalking. Um, but on other apps, um, app users have reported that it's really unclear how to report. It's unclear what happens when you do report. The response you get when you report is very um, automated. So it's like a bot is talking to you, like uh, not a human. Yeah. Um, and these are the concerns that that people raise in terms of safety. Have you found that, that people that you've spoken to as part of your research, the users of these apps, that they have been inclined to report that kind of abuse or, or thought, oh, you know, it was uncomfortable, but maybe it's not that bad. I just won't report it and I'll go about my life and then, you know, potentially keep experiencing that, that kind of behaviour again. Yeah. I mean, look, it's really important to, I think, um, put app-related abuse in the context of the rest of the world. So I, I think often apps are spoken about as if they're this special dating space and um, face-to-face dating is entirely safe and no one is ever worried about unwanted comments or contact or these kinds of things, whereas on apps it happens relentlessly. Unfortunately, I say this as a 56-year-old who dated plenty pre-app, Um uh many people particularly women do kind of normalize unwanted comments and mm. abuse and garbage because that is considered to be a normal part of the quote unquote heterosexual dynamic um so yes people don't always report also i think some people um have concerns about not wanting to get other people kicked off the app. So people said that in our in our comments, like they they didn't know what reporting would do. Um, they didn't think it warranted the behaviour that they were uncomfortable with warranted a ban, and they didn't want the person banned from the app. They wanted a an educative response, and because they weren't clear what the app was going to do, they didn't report. So there's a range of reasons, both from yeah abuse and discomfort in dating being normalised, unfortunately, for many populations, um, to just a lack of clarity around what the app's safety policies actually were. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I suppose given that this space is, is you know, relatively um, sort of under or, or unregulated, I mean, if you have sort of, you know, shared information with people, you might have shared quite personal information with them. They might even know sort of where you live and where you work if you, you know, might have caught up with them somewhere as well. So there could be that fear, I imagine, that if you report them, that might inflame things and you could be at even more risk as a result of doing so, which is not a really a good um, position to be in. The government has... Uh, called earlier this year, I understand, a national roundtable on online dating safety um, called by the Minister for Communications, Michelle Rowland, and Minister for Social Services, Amanda Richworth. Can you just kind of set the scene for that for us? I mean, what was that responding to and, and, and what is its its breadth? What's it exactly looking at and who's involved yeah, in those conversations? Yeah, so there were a range of concerns from, from the eSafety Commission and from organisations that support victims and, victims and survivors of violence. And, and there was also a survey run by the Institute of Criminology um and so that conversation involved people from various um sexual assault support services but it also involved um representatives of a number of um popular dating apps 
and it was about how to ensure safety on apps. There was floated in that conversation a call for app users to provide 100 points of ID. I and a few other people were a bit concerned by that proposal because I think it's basically giving way too much data to private organisations, mm. particularly in the wake of the Optus breach. That is not, um, I think, a safety um uh, you know, it, it makes us unsafe in another part of our lives yeah. while it appears to be making us safe in dating. Um, but, yeah, there, there was also, you know, a, a really um, robust conversation about what victim survivors wanted in order to feel safer on apps. Yeah, I was speaking with Professor Kath Albury from Swinburne University of Technology all about online dating sites and apps and um, online safety really. There's been a call from government for the industry to develop a, a code of practice to regulate this. Are there other jurisdictions that have either called for an industry code of practice or even passed legislation that might enable them or force them to develop certain kind of safety measures and, and build them into their actual kind of systems? Uh, not in terms of um, dating safety. There have been different responses in different jurisdictions around the ways apps collect and manage data. So Grindr, for example, has been fined um, in Denmark under um, GDPR guidelines around um, data collection and data sharing. Um, I think the issue for me in lots of these conversations is the assumption that if we had more laws and more regulation, people would be safer. Mm. I mean, my concern is sexual assault is already against the law, um, but that's not prevention. Um, that is having the capacity to prosecute after the fact. Um, I would love to see the apps uh, create um, design or infrastructure that helps people control their dating app experience better. Um, and I think that's a hard thing for governments to impose from the top down. How much of a willingness is there on the part of these companies and these developers to take those kinds of issues seriously and, and adopt a more educative approach, acknowledging, of course, that you know sexual violence and, and the like is a problem for society-wide, as you say, that's not just specific to the use of these apps. But I'm kind of thinking about the way that the government has sought to negotiate, I suppose, with the likes of Facebook and Meta and, and you know, our experience with the news media bargaining code and how Facebook then you know, imposed a news ban for a short time, the kind of, you know, threw its weight around. I mean, are these apps sort of open to finding ways to make users' experiences safer? Yeah, look, again, it's uneven. And I think part of the issue with some of the apps is the people who are at the centre of the design or the infrastructure are not the people who feel unsafe when they're using the apps. So it's hard for them to imagine what app safety issues are. So I, I was involved in a conversation with app designers a few years ago um, where they were saying they were designing this new dating app and they didn't want any segregation. They wanted everyone to be able to see everyone and um, that would make, you know, make it so safe and fun. And I was saying, well, in our study, you know, trans people and queer people, um, particularly women seeking women and other gender diverse people, don't want to be seen on the app by heterosexual men. That makes them uncomfortable, mm. makes them more likely to receive, in, in their opinion, and more likely to receive an unsolicited message or picture. And the guys designing the app were quite surprised. And I said, look, think of the difference in the environment in, you know, a sports bar, you know, the night after the grand final, 
and you know a queer bar during Mardi Gras. It's it, who is in the space yeah. and, and what makes them feel safe or comfortable. Um, you know, design makes a difference, and and you know, the apps are kind of an imaginary dating space in a way. We imagine who's there when we're when we're um, sharing information, and and that affects our our sense of how safe we are or or are not. Yeah, that's right. And and I mean, you know, I've used some of them before, and they all do have their their kind of ways in which they cater towards what people are kind of looking for as well and, and provide certain, I mean, the sense of community or safety potentially as well, depending on who they're, they're sort of geared at to. And you can absolutely understand why someone might gravitate towards one because it feels more like, you know, they're encountering their people, their community there. If someone is experiencing abuse via these platforms, I mean, what is the best thing to do? Is it Obviously, it depends on the scale, but is reporting through the apps a, a viable approach? What kind of other advice might you have for those who have had these negative experiences? Yeah, look, it, uh, block and report is absolutely fine and I would never advise anyone to hold back from that if they feel unsafe and uncomfortable. I will say, though, the flip side of that is um, malicious reporting. So Bumble, interestingly, just released a, a safety update and they said one of the things they're keeping an eye on is... Um, you know, malicious attempts to deplatform certain app users. So reporting people because you think they're a sex worker or you think they're trans, that's actually not making you unsafe. Um, and that's that's a bad use of the, the report button and, and Bumble are onto you if you're doing that. Um, but, uh, yeah, block, report, um, the eSafety Commission will um, escalate if you feel you're not getting a response from the app, the, the same as um, they will escalate if you feel unsafe on a platform like Facebook. They will certainly escalate on your behalf um, and you don't need to have police involved if, if that's not a thing that makes you feel safer. Yeah, excellent advice. Um, super important research you're doing and, and good to see that the government is kind of taking notice of these issues as well. It's been so great having you part of the show, Kath. Thanks so much. Yeah, pleasure. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Big apologies to all the non-Pies fans out there. Finger must have slipped on that one. No apologies to all at all to the Black and White Army. Got some lovely text coming in, a bit of shade coming in on the text line as well. But, yeah, the grand final is upon us and the Mighty Pies are there for the big dance, taking on the Lions uh, at the MCG this coming weekend. To say I'm excited is an understatement, but two people who are at least as excited as me, the Magpies mega fans and the finest ambassadors of the Black and Whites, Anton Issa and social media star Sweet Luke. <laughs> Hello. Hey, thank you, you for having us on, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming. How are we feeling? Yeah. Excited? <laughs> I'm super excited and I'm unusually not crazily nervous. I think I'm an expert now at losing grand finals. I went to <laughs> 02, I went to 03, I went to 2011. Yeah. But this week I'm like, you know what? It's our bloody time. It's yeah. our time. Yeah. yeah. I, I did see a stat that I think we've only won two of the last 17 grand final appearances, something like that. Which... Yeah, that's just classical English. But um, no, I'm feeling pretty confident too. Like I had a couple of guys at work come up to me today and say, oh, you know, you're nervous, you're confident, or how are you feeling for this week? And, you know, I'm, I'm confident because you have to always go into a game confident. But if you're nervous for the for the whole week it kind of ruins the vibe as well yeah. so go into it with a little bit of positivity a little bit anything can happen we don't know what's going to happen 
tonight, let alone, you know, on Saturday afternoon. So going in with a bit of um, positivity, uh, confidence and enjoying every single bit of this grand final week. 100%. It's just a great week to soak up Melbourne, isn't it? And I mean, I always enjoy grand final week, no matter sort of who's in it. But with the pies there, it's yeah. extra, extra special. But it is important, I think, to soak up all the banners you see outside houses. Yeah. And I remember someone um, in my street growing up painted his car St Kilda colours when St Kilda <laughs> made it. So I love that kind of nuffy stuff. Yeah, I'm, I've been posting, or people have been tagging me in their stories all week. And some guys painted his fence, um, flags <laughs> in the windows, Someone's house as well with black and white stripes, so it's it's catching on. The the, the army's catching on. And get into it, like don't yeah, hold back. This 100%. is a festival. This is a festival of the city. And when you have a big club like Collingwood, probably the biggest club in Melbourne, if not the country, um, you know you feel it. You feel the energy, yep. and so yeah. just get into it. Get into it, indeed. Um, what was your experience at the prelim final last? Like, and you were there, were you? Mm-hmm. I was there, sitting top deck. Um, <laughs> it was. It was just, you know, it's so hard to describe, but when you're in a stadium and you've got 95,000 other people and you're completely in sync in terms of when you sing, <laughs> when you curse, <laughs> when you cheer, like there was a moment, like there's something about footy that just brings out the irrational animal <laughs> of humanity. And I'm sitting there and I'm like screaming and I'm yelling. I would never behave like this in yeah. normal society. And I'm like, and I had a moment, I think, in the third quarter and I just thought to myself, Antoine, take a moment and just capture what you're doing. You are screaming like an imbecile. You're saying the most horrendous things. You're behaving like something from the Stone Age. You're insane. You're yeah. nuts. And then I turned around and everyone was doing the same thing that I was doing. And I'm like, oh, my God, I am in a family of crazy people. This is great. I Absolutely. love it. And so when you at the afterwards when the siren went, everyone was just happy and singing. And this, it's just a euphoria. And it's just an adrenaline that you get. Um, that you don't get anywhere else, I don't think. Like, you can't get that same adrenaline that you get when you have 95,000 other people just going through the same emotions, that wave of emotions that you're going through for about two hours. And it's just, it's an incredible feeling. Totally. I love that we all sing a song afterwards as well. It's such a great <laughs> tradition in AFL, I reckon. What was your prelim? Yeah, like, so I was there, I was lucky enough to get tickets um, behind the cheer squad. So it was very, very rowdy. Uh, but like Ant was saying, like, the... How everyone just kind of knows to even do the Collingwood chant. After Dan McStay kicked the first goal, chant went up. When we were down, the chant went up. It's not like one person starting it. It's like, you know, 20,000 people going, I'm going to start the Collingwood chant right now. And everyone's doing it. And, and like, you, like you said, Ed, I had um, I, she, I was a young kid behind me, I don't know, maybe 12 or something, and if, with her parents and stuff. And I'm just like, cursing and dad's like you know stop like there's people around you i turned around and i said you know sorry for swearing she goes no nah, it's fine keep going <laughs> so, you know what i mean like um you know whether it's on the tv yelling at the tv or yelling at the ground everyone's doing it so that's right but it's um it was a euphoric feeling that those last seven minutes i think when no one kicked a goal um and collingwood were just you know uh tunneling it you know trying to get the ball just to stop play and yeah, it was crazy, but that one point euphoria just gap. I'm just riding that momentum into into this week. When I think, I think when the players and the coach have said repeatedly throughout the year that they thrive off yep. that energy they get from Collingwood yeah. supporters. Yeah. I think Collingwood, we know now that we play a role, and so there was a moment I think in the second quarter where GWS was just getting on top, and so. I think there was a moment where we just started chanting because yeah. we're just like, we have to lift our players. Yeah. And yeah, I, yeah. I was texting, I've got friends in the cheer squad. I was texting the cheer squad being like, <laughs> get, us going. get your bloody chant going. <laughs> we need to lift. We need to help the players. And so I just, I think now there's an awareness amongst the Collingwood army that 
we know we have a role to play as well. And so when our back's against the wall, we have to start chanting. We have to get our voices up because we know the players will lift if yeah, we do that. Yeah, 100%. That was amazing, wasn't it? it? It's not just the chant that goes up when the going's good, but it's actually, no, no, come on, like have a crack. And with, what, 95-odd thousand yeah. Pies fans in the stadium, um, yeah, drowned out everything else um, Yeah, on, on, on uh, Friday night. And, uh, I mean, tell us about your Collingwood journey because I'm fascinated by how people come to the club and any football club, really. I think, Sweet, you were featured in an article in the age about a year ago, wasn't yeah. it? When you were making the journey up to Sydney to that prelim final. And I think yeah. I remember reading that you kind of really latched onto the pies in, in 2018. Yeah, so, well, it was kind of like my family weren't big football um, uh, supporters or anything like that. So kind of like with with Collingwood, it was just primary school, you know, kind of following them through primary school and, and you know, parents were taking to the football and stuff. And then 2018, I was in year 12 when we won the premiership. So I got to celebrate that with mates. And then, yeah, uh, 2018 was obviously huge. But I, I've always loved the Pies for 30, 30 plus years or however old I am. But, um, you know, my love for them has really grown with this swoop stuff and yeah. just seeing seeing how much the team means to everybody like every person they'll message me like you know thank you for this or or, or, you know I love the Pies for this I've been following him for 40 50 years and that gets me really riled up in a good way and 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 it just means so much to to so many people and it deepens your love for it seeing a whole raft of people not just family not just close friends and um yeah, so my love has just gone a thousandfold these last five years since I've been doing swoop stuff. But uh, yeah, driving to the prelim with um, dad and my brother, and you know the inverse, losing exactly. by a point last last yeah. year. So it's um, <laughs> it's definitely better this year. But it is it's community, right? Yeah, and so 100%. when you start to plug into community, and as I said, you go through that wave of like sharing emotions with people. Mm. Um, it, it ties you in, um, and it becomes more than just a game of football it really yeah. becomes a community a practice that you do and because you get those emotional rewards you kind of get hooked on it yep and it's like god i can't get this anywhere else i can only get it from footy yeah and i can't only get it from crazy <laughs> collingwood supporters so i'm gonna plug in um that also means i mean it's a high risk high reward engagement right so it is yeah like, which is why we get nervous sometimes and then you get the pitfalls <laughs> but then you share the pitfalls i remember when you know like whenever we lose big games back in the 2000s, I would just jump onto, you know, Big Footy was the thing at the yeah, time. Yep, yep. I would just jump onto the Collingwood Forum to be like, I need to sulk with other Collingwood supporters because yeah. they're the only ones who understand my state yeah. of mind right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so has Collingwood been there for, for sort of your whole life? Ed? So I grew up in a psychotic Collingwood family, which is probably why I'm a psychotic Collingwood <laughs> supporter. Um, I don't even remember the first game I went to. I think Dad took me when I was a, t- a toddler. Yeah. And it was in the 90s, so we had um, reserve seats at Victoria Park, wow. and that was every Saturday. Um, we would go to Waverley and we'd go, and I grew up in Craigieburn, so we'd drive from Craigieburn to Waverley Park. We'd go to the G to those big games in the 90s. Um, we had a massive house party when we won the flag against Essendon in 1990. So we've always been very strong, black and white. Yeah. Um, and, and then 2002 rolled along and I was in year 12. And I bought a scalping ticket to go to the grand final. Wow. And I'm not going to tell you how much it was because it was ridiculous for an 18-year-old to spend. And then I did it again in 2003. I spent so much money and we lost both grand yeah, finals. And mum said to me, she's like, do not go this year. 
And then I told her yesterday that I got a ticket. For me. <laughs> like, you might be the curse, man. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's, yeah. <laughs> That's putting me on edge. I'm getting some lovely text messages through. Offensive interview. That's what we want to hear. Go Lions. Yes, indeed. Soak it all up. Up the woods. This should be a regular segment. I totally agree, Jack. <laughs> Can the pies. Cold pies. Go pies. Bit of a mix, but... Yeah, we're going to keep this rolling for another 10 minutes or so. Um, I, I love that sort of people come to this club through a range of different channels. And I was actually up visiting my auntie uh, a little while ago earlier this year. And, you know, Collingwood goes back sort of generations in my family. My grandpa was a mega fan. And she dug up this newspaper clipping from The Sun, Wednesday, March 28, 1990. Uh, Lee oh, wow. Matthews is interviewed. And we always had this rumour in our family that my grandpa would write to the club every week using the moniker Old Time Magpie, never actually uh, divulged his name. And there's this interview with Lee Matthews when he's asked about whether the supporters ever get in touch and how he deals with the in- intense kind of uh, investment of Collingwood fans. And um, he says, there's one particular supporter who writes to me every week and apparently has done so to previous Collingwood coaches. They're very detailed letters that lob on my desk about Wednesday, every Wednesday or so, about his thoughts on prospective team placements and performances. <laughs> Do the letters make any sense? The interviewer asks. Yeah, they're fairly logical. I always read them. Ever act on any of the recommendations? I consider all genuine advice. Oh, my God. Wow. It's just March 1990. We know what happened that year. We went on, on yeah. premiership. Sweet, have you been writing letters to yeah, McRae? Yeah, Craig yeah, McRae. I don't, know if, he's, I don't know if he's reading him straight into the fireplace, I think. It's, uh, <laughs> but I have been writing Here lots, are my ins and outs. <laughs> lots of letters, lots of tweets, lots of uh, uh, Instagram posts about him. So yeah, yeah. I love the man. But uh, interesting, I mean, I've listened to some of your um, your interviews, Sweep, and, and you've interviewed sort of players and, and really yeah. sort of significant figures in, in football generally. And I remember listening to interview with, I think, David King when I was travelling internationally earlier this year. And he talked about how he really values people like yourself who follow teams so closely and they actually get a lot out of your insights on the game that some of those commentators don't have because they're yeah. following, you know, a whole bunch of different teams. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's pretty surreal to be, I guess, in the position that I'm in. Sometimes it's, it's you know, imposter imposter syndrome as well. Like, you know, getting to interview Eddie and, and Dan McStay. And, yeah, David King was was a good one, one to have on at mid-season. And, and yeah, like, you know, there's, there's a lots of lots of fans who, who have, like you said, like your grandfather, logical sort of, Things to, things to say about the club and stuff, and it's nice, and and we know that we can be biased, and that's just in our it's in our nature. But um, yeah, getting to, getting to see that all and different sort of perspectives, and you know, David King talking about the pies, it's 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 really it's really cool to see, and I just love the love from the media this year on yeah. Collingwood and, and Craig himself. Yeah, but just on you, um, I can say as a Collingwood supporter that you are my go-to source now for news <laughs> on Collingwood. No, seriously, and not just me, but. I think everyone who follows Collingwood now, if you're really engaged in the football club, like you go to Swoop to get your news (laughs) to what's going on in the footy club. And you've created a hub where not only can you get like up-to-date information as to what's going on in the footy club, because you don't really get that all the time in mainstream footy media, Mm. right? Like Mm. they can't go across every single detail of one football club. But if you're a supporter, like all I want to know is what's happening at my club. Like I don't really, like I'm interested, but I'm not so interested What's happening with free? And some of that commentary is all to generate right. a headline or, you know, a yeah. surface right. level as well. But there's an audience and a demand for that kind of level of detail for Absolutely. that one, for the football club that you support, right? And especially with Collingwood because you have a big following. So I think Swoop's filled that. But also you've created a hub and a community um, around which we can engage with other supporters. Also without the layer of maybe having a football club that does it in a more of a marketing style. Mm, yeah. You've done it in a more authentic community style. Yeah. And that's been really valuable for Collingwood Pride, like our yeah. LGBTQ supporter group, because we've been able to plug into um, you know, the broader Collingwood community 
Um, and we've actually gotten a few people to join our pride group through Swoop because there are LGBTQ or people who are allies or people who just want a cool space to be in that's kind of fun and friendly and they all follow Swoop. Yeah. I'm like, oh, wow, there's like a little club where you can kind of be part of that. So it's... It's all kind of working in and sync. Really I love well. that that you two are such great ambassadors for being good fans as well, and sort of good citizens as fans. You know, we're complete pies, nuffies, you two, but always respectful. And even if you, you do call it out for swearing at a game, which can happen, <laughs> but it's not. You know, there's swearing, there's swearing, right? Yeah. If you're not abusing people, it's pure passion. Obviously, you try and hold yourself back if there's kids around and the like, but it's very different to, yeah. um, you know, cutting people down and that sort of thing too. So, I mean, and you sort of revived the Collingwood. Well, it's called Collingwood Pride now, but something that was begun many years ago by Richard Watts, who's a, a stalwart of the Triple R Airwaves. Um, then it sort of lay dormant for a while. What's it been like for you, sort of building and, and tapping into that community of the LGBTQ? supporter base for Collingwood? Well, it's helped that there's, Collingwood has been riding this incredible wave on the field and there's so much six, um, attention coming to Collingwood, even from amongst Collingwood supporters. So there's a focus on it. So that's really helped. But, you know, when I restarted the Pride group, um, I looked around and almost every club in the... Almost every footy club has a Pride group now. So Collingwood actually fell behind the eight yep. ball. We started mm. it in the 90s. And then we just kind of dropped the ball. Yeah. Carlton have such an incredible and a cre- you know, like it grates nice. <laughs> and I know I love your Carlton Pride. I know you guys are great. But just, you know, Carlton are so plugged into their pride group. They but the club provides them so much support. Yep. They're so well established. Essendon the same. Hawthorne, Geelong. Bulldogs. Yeah, Bulldogs. All of, all honestly, of them, yeah. all of them. 17 other Sydney. Yeah. yeah. So we have really fallen behind the eight ball. So I went to Collingwood. I'm like, hello. You know, we've got to do better than this. Yeah. Um, and so uh, but also from the I guess you'll appreciate this too, Swoop. You know, from the fan perspective, I think, you know, we're coming to a stage where I think fans have a stake in the football club, the football club's identity, the football club's yep. culture. When Duberta came around in 2020 and the, all the focus was on Collingwood's culture and changing it for the better. Yes, Craig McRae has done an incredible job on the inside. So has Jeff Brown and all the staff that he's brought along, the playing group, Darcy Moore. Yep. But the fans have a role to play as well. And that's where yeah. we've come in. Yep. You know, we've come in and we're like, you know what, we've got a stake in this. We yeah. also have a role in defining and determining what the culture of the footy club is. Totally. And that's why we're here. Yeah, yeah. and the AFLW has been a great part of that story as well. Right. And, and the yeah. Collingwood women's team coming on board too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it has. And like, um, you know, I kind of see it through through my socials and stuff. And and like you said, yeah, just, there's a time and place for, for sort of everything. And, you know... I might be a little bit chirpy on Twitter when, when Carlton lose or, or something like that because that's just that's, <laughs> that's just part of the it's fun, a part right? of the part of your thing yeah. you know like I got whippets that um, hate cats they never met a cat but they hate the cats because that's just bred into them you know yeah. it's spread bred into them so it's spread into me to sort of hate those sort of people but like um, <laughs> you know the, the community that that I've been trying to build we've been trying to build with with pride as well it it's just fostering new sort of a new way of thinking and, and mm. Darcy Moore leads it so well with, with the way the, they call him the new age sort of captain. Yeah. And, and he really is. And, and um, I absolutely love everything he's done. Craig McRae um, as well. And, and you just kind of, kind of got to look at um, people say, why do we need a pride group? Or why do we need this? Why do we need that? Why can't we all just support Collingwood? And yeah, we'd love to all just support Collingwood at the same time without having these sort of, um, these other sort of groups. But you know, I saw something on Twitter today where it was. I think he's. I think it's Jordan. Jordan Boyd from, yeah, from right. Carlton. Yeah, Carlton. Yeah, he had um, nail polish on. I got nail polish on right now. You know, mm. Grundy had it on at one stage. You know, whatever. Every it is, prize right? fan should have yeah. black and white nail polish exactly. on. Exactly. You know what I mean? But like, you know, and and I guess I guess it's toxic mas- masculinity at some. Like, oh no, he's just setting himself up for failure because he's got nail. 
it's literally an elbow. Right. Actually, it, you know, it's different if he was wearing gloves with um, super glue on them. Right. That's setting himself up for failure. But yeah. right. you know what I mean? So it's these sort of things where we just want to sort of shift the focus from what was in the 90s, early 2000s to what will be. Right in in this new era Absolutely. of not only Collingwood but the AFL and AFLW in general. Yeah, I mean you've got to also understand that you know everyone everyone has been drawn to football from all walks of life, whether you're gender, sexuality, race. People of all stripes from society have always been drawn to footy, but footy hasn't always been welcoming Absolutely. of everyone of every yeah. stripe. Not of women, not of people of color and indigenous people, and still having issues on that level. Um, definitely people <laughs> of different sexual orientations or different gender expressions. Even if you are, like, practice a heterosexual or heteronormative life, if you decide to dabble in a bit of femininity or some non-binary kind of antics, like painting your nails, you get attacked. And mm. it's, it's not about being straight or gay. It's about to- toxic masculinity. Like, oh, yeah. to be 40, you have to be like this. It's like, no, you can be whatever you want to be yeah. Yeah. as a player and as a supporter. And so that's what the message we're trying to get across is you can be passionate, you can be diehard, you can be a Collins supporter and hate Carlton, you know. <laughs> but, you know, you can do that without hating on people. Yeah. Like, just accept that we are a diverse society and that, you can express that on the playing field and you can express that in the stands and you can do it safely. And that's sort of always been reflected in the fan base, but not at all in the culture that, that engages with that fan base and certainly the cultures within clubs and at the level of the AFL as well across the board. So it's amazing to have people you know, like yourselves and, and many others as well pushing forward that momentum and, and advancing that sort of change that needs to happen, not just within Collingwood, yeah. but across the whole um, breadth of the AFL and teams and society more broadly as well. I'm um, Just very quickly onto some, some team stuff. So yeah. what are we going to do with selection? I'm not sure how many listeners are familiar with the and outs of this, but we can go full enough for a moment. So Daniel McStay is yep. out with his knee injury. So at least one player is going to come in. What do you think we should do? First, heart goes out to him. Heart goes out to his family. Playing the team that he played for as well, against the team he played for. Um, heartbroken. I love everything that McStay did. But yeah, you're right. One card comes out. I think maybe Taylor Adams sort of comes in. He's the sort of nuffy that we... we he's a Collingwood nuffy that we need in there. And I think maybe... Ginevan straight into the team as well. I only see about one. I only really see one change. They might go smaller yeah. um, to combat um, Brisbane Lions' right. defence. I think it's Taylor Adams as well. I think we saw in that Brisbane-Carlton game in that second quarter how the Brisbane midfield just yes, took Brisbane. control. Yep. They just, Carlton couldn't touch the ball. Yeah. And so we have to. our midfield needs to be on it. Um, so I, I agree. I think Taylor Adams, if he's fit, would come back in and maybe... If we need to have more of a tall up forward, I think Hal might go back and forth. I mean, it's yep. the grand final. Craig McRae is going to throw anything and do anything exactly. to That's make right. sure we get the winning combination right. Yep. He might think he started the game with the winning combination. Second quarter might arrive. He's like, oh, okay, I've got to move Hal. Change things up. Move things around. Yeah. So and I think he will do that. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I think it comes to which team is hungriest and wants to win. And I think we have had that hunger for a while and we've demonstrated that hunger. So I... I yeah. I'm quietly confident. Actually, no, I'm, I'm loudly confident, to be honest. Like, yeah. You may as well go in with, with, like I said at the start, you may as well go in with confidence. Yeah. In, and I think um, this is our year. Yeah, look, I know what the grandpa losses, we all do. Um, like, I know if we lose, I'll be in depression until next <laughs> June. <laughs> and I've, I know what that is. I've done that depression until next June. Um, but you're right. Let's ride it. Yeah. And if we get it, then it'll be fantastic. And I agree. Fully embrace it, feel all the feelings. That's what this week is all about. And, yeah, for all those people out there who are engaged in footy in some way, 
Hope you've enjoyed this chat. Uh, <laughs> sweet fluke, Antoine Issa, thank you so much for coming in. Um, have an amazing uh, week this week thank and you. also Saturday. I mean, both of you are going along, mm-hmm. which I'm super jealous about. <laughs> I'm going to try and get my hands on a ticket if anyone out there has me lead. <laughs> please let me know. Um, but, yeah, thanks so much and um, up to Mighty Pies. Thank you for having us on, mate. Appreciate it. Up to Pies. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.